Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Volume 2, Chapter 18 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume 2, Chapter 18 the neighbor again december twentieth eighteen twenty five another year is past and i am weary of this life and yet i cannot wish to leave it whatever afflictions assail me here i cannot wish to go and leave my darling in this dark and wicked world alone without a friend to guide him through its weary mazes to warn him of its thousand snares and guard him from the perils that beset him on every hand i am not well fitted to be his only companion i know but there is no other to supply my place i am too grave to minister to his amusements and enter into his infantile sports as a nurse or a mother ought to and often his bursts of gleeful merriment trouble and alarm me i see in them his father's spirit and temperament and i tremble for the consequences and too often damp the innocent mirth i ought to share that father on the contrary has no weight of sadness on his mind is troubled with no fears no scruples concerning his son's future welfare and at evenings especially the times when the child sees him the most and the oftenest he is always particularly jocund and open-hearted ready to laugh and to jest with anything or anybody but me and i am particularly silent and sad therefore of course the child dotes upon his seemingly joyous amusing ever-indulgent papa and will at any time gladly exchange my company for his this disturbs me greatly not so much for the sake of my son's affection though i do prize that highly and though i feel it is my right and know i have done much to earn it as for that influence over him which for his own advantage i would strive to purchase and retain and which for very spite his father delights to rob me of and from motives of mere idle egotism is pleased to win to himself making no use of it but to torment me and ruin the child my only consolation is that he spends comparatively little of his time at home and during the months he passes in london or elsewhere i have a chance of recovering the ground i had lost and overcoming with good the evil he has wrought by his wilful mismanagement but then it is a bitter trial to behold him on his return doing his utmost to subvert my labours and transform my innocent affectionate tractable darling into a selfish disobedient and mischievous boy thereby preparing the soil for those vices he has so successfully cultivated in his own perverted nature happily there were none of arthur's friends invited to grassdale last autumn he took himself off to visit some of them instead i wish he would always do so and i wish his friends were numerous and loving enough to keep him amongst them all the year round mr hargrave considerably to my annoyance did not go with him but i think i have done with that gentleman at last for seven or eight months he behaved so remarkably well and managed so skilfully too that i was almost completely off my guard 
and was really beginning to look upon him as a friend and even to treat him as such with certain prudent restrictions which i deemed scarcely necessary when presuming upon my unsuspecting kindness he thought he might venture to overstep the bounds of decent moderation and propriety that had so long restrained him it was on a pleasant evening at the close of may i was wandering in the park and he on seeing me there as he rode past made bold to enter and approach me dismounting and leaving his horse at the gate this was the first time he had ventured to come within its enclosure since i had been left alone without the sanction of his mother's or sister's company or at least the excuse of a message from them but he managed to appear so calm and easy so respectful and self-possessed in his friendliness that though a little surprised i was neither alarmed nor offended at the unusual liberty and he walked with me under the ash-trees and by the waterside and talked with considerable animation good taste and intelligence on many subjects before i began to think about getting rid of him then after a pause during which we both stood gazing on the calm blue water i revolving in my mind the best means of politely dismissing my companion he no doubt pondering other matters equally alien to the sweet sights and sounds that alone were present to his senses he suddenly electrified me by beginning in a peculiar tone low soft but perfectly distinct to pour forth the most unequivocal expressions of earnest and passionate love pleading his cause with all the bold yet artful eloquence he could summon to his aid but i cut short his appeal and repulsed him so determinedly so decidedly and with such a mixture of scornful indignation tempered with cool dispassionate sorrow and pity for his benighted mind that he withdrew astonished mortified and discomforted and a few days after i heard that he had departed for london he returned however in eight or nine weeks and did not entirely keep aloof from me but comported himself in so remarkable a manner that his quick-sighted sister could not fail to notice the change what have you done to walter mrs huntingdon said she one morning when i had called at the grove and he had just left the room after exchanging a few words of the coldest civility he has been so extremely ceremonious and stately of late i can't imagine what it is all about unless you have desperately offended him tell me what it is that i may be your mediator and make you friends again i have done nothing willingly to offend him said i if he is offended he can best tell you himself what it is about i'll ask him cried the giddy girl springing up and putting her head out of the window he's only in the garden walter no no esther you will seriously displease me if you do and i shall leave you immediately and not come back again for months perhaps years did you call esther said her brother approaching the window from without yes i wanted to ask you good morning esther said i taking her hand and giving it a severe squeeze to ask you continued she to get me a rose for mrs huntingdon he departed mrs huntingdon she exclaimed turning to me and still holding me fast by the hand i'm quite shocked at you you're just as angry and distant and cold as he is and i'm determined you shall be as good friends as ever before you go esther how can you be so rude cried mrs hargrave who was seated gravely knitting in her easy chair surely you never will learn to conduct yourself like a lady well mamma you said yourself but the young lady was silenced by the uplifted finger of her mamma accompanied with a very stern shake of the head 
isn't she cross whispered she to me but before i could add my share of reproof mr hargrave reappeared at the window with a beautiful moss rose in his hand here esther i brought you the rose said he extending it towards her give it her yourself you blockhead cried she recoiling with a spring from between us mrs huntingdon would rather receive it from you replied he in a very serious tone but lowering his voice that his mother might not hear his sister took the rose and gave it to me my brother's compliments mrs huntingdon and he hopes you and he will come to a better understanding by and by will that do walter added the saucy girl turning to him and putting his arm round his neck as he stood leaning upon the sill of the window or should i have said that you are sorry you were so touchy or that you hope she will pardon your offence you silly girl you don't know what you are talking about replied he gravely indeed i don't for i'm quite in the dark now esther interposed mrs hargrave who if equally benighted on the subject of our estrangement saw at least that her daughter was behaving very improperly i must insist upon your leaving the room pray don't mrs hargrave for i am going to leave it myself said i and immediately made my adieu about a week after mr hargrave brought his sister to see me he conducted himself at first with his usual cold distant half stately half melancholy altogether injured air but esther made no remark upon it this time she had evidently been schooled into better manners she talked to me and laughed and romped with little arthur her loved and loving playmate he somewhat to my discomfort enticed her from the room to have a run in the hall and thence into the garden i got up to stir the fire mr hargrave asked if i felt cold and shut the door a very unseasonable piece of officiousness for i had meditated following the noisy playfellows if they did not speedily return he then took the liberty of walking up to the fire himself and asking me if i were aware that mr huntingdon was now at the seat of lord lowborough and likely to continue there some time no but it's no matter i answered carelessly and if my cheek glowed like fire it was rather at the question than the information it conveyed you don't object to it he said not at all if lord lowborough likes his company you have no love left for him then not the least i knew that i knew you were too high-minded and pure in your own nature to continue to regard one so utterly false and polluted with any feelings but those of indignation and scornful abhorrence is he not your friend said i turning my eyes from the fire to his face with perhaps a slight touch of those feelings he assigned to another he was replied i with the same calm gravity as before but do not wrong me by supposing that i could continue my friendship and esteem to a man who could so infamously so impiously forsake and injure one so transcendently well i won't speak of it but tell me do you never think of revenge revenge no what good would that do it would make him no better and me no happier i don't know how to talk to you mrs huntingdon said he smiling you are only half a woman your nature must be half human half angelic such goodness overawes me i don't know what to make of it then sir i fear you must be very much worse than you should be if i a mere ordinary mortal am by your own confession so vastly your superior and since there exists so little sympathy between us i think we had better each look out for some more congenial companion 
and forthwith moving to the window i began to look out for my little son and his gay young friend no i am the ordinary mortal i maintain replied mr hargrave i will not allow myself to be worse than my fellows but you madame i equally maintain there is nobody like you but are you happy he asked in a serious tone as happy as some others i suppose are you as happy as you desire to be no one is so blessed as that comes to on this side eternity one thing i know returned he with a deep sad sigh you are immeasurably happier than i am i am very sorry for you then i could not help replying are you indeed no for if you were you would be glad to relieve me and so i should if i could do so without injuring myself or any other and can you suppose that i should wish you to injure yourself no on the contrary it is your own happiness i long for more than mine you are miserable now mrs huntingdon continued he looking me boldly in the face you do not complain but i see and feel and know that you are miserable and must remain so as long as you keep those walls of impenetrable ice about your still warm and palpitating heart and i am miserable too deign to smile on me and i am happy trust me and you shall be happy also for if you are a woman i can make you so and i will do it in spite of yourself he muttered between his teeth and as for others the question is between ourselves alone you cannot injure your husband you know and no one else has any concern in the matter i have a son mr hargrave and you have a mother said i retiring from the window whither he had followed me they need not know he began but before anything more could be said on either side esther and arthur re-entered the room the former glanced at walter's flushed excited countenance and then at mine a little flushed and excited too i dare say though from far different causes she must have thought we had been quarrelling desperately and was evidently perplexed and disturbed at the circumstance but she was too polite or too much afraid of her brother's anger to refer to it she seated herself on the sofa and putting back her bright golden ringlets that were scattered in wild profusion over her face she immediately began to talk about the garden and her little playfellow and continued to chatter away in her usual strain till her brother summoned her to depart if i have spoken too warmly forgive me he murmured on taking his leave or i shall never forgive myself esther smiled and glanced at me i merely bowed and her countenance fell she thought it a poor return for walter's generous concession and was disappointed in her friend poor child she little knows the world she lives in mr hargrave had not an opportunity of meeting me again in private for several weeks after this but when he did meet me there was less of pride and more of touching melancholy in his manner than before oh how he annoyed me i was obliged at last almost entirely to remit my visits to the grove at the expense of deeply offending mrs hargrave and seriously afflicting poor esther who really values my society for want of better and who ought not to suffer for the fault of her brother but that indefatigable foe was not yet vanquished he seemed to be always on the watch i frequently saw him riding lingeringly past the premises looking searchingly round him as he went or if i did not rachel did that sharp-sighted woman soon guessed how matters stood between us and descrying the enemy's movements from her elevation at the nursery window she would give me a quiet intimation 
if she saw me preparing for a walk when she had reason to believe he was about or to think it likely that he would meet or overtake me in the way i meant to traverse i would then defer my ramble or confine myself for that day to the park and gardens or if the proposed excursion was a matter of importance such as a visit to the sick or afflicted i would take rachel with me and then i was never molested but one mild sunshiny day early in november i had ventured forth alone to visit the village school and a few of the poor tenants and on my return i was alarmed at the clatter of a horse's feet behind me approaching at a rapid steady trot there was no stile or gap at hand by which i could escape into the fields so i walked quietly on saying to myself it may not be he after all and if it is and if he do annoy me it shall be for the last time i am determined if there be power in words and looks against cool impudence and mawkish sentimentality so inexhaustible as his the horse soon overtook me and was reined up close beside me it was mr hargrave he greeted me with a smile intended to be soft and melancholy but his triumphant satisfaction at having caught me at last so shone through that it was quite a failure after briefly answering his salutation and inquiring after the ladies at the grove i turned away and walked on but he followed and kept his horse at my side it was evident he intended to be my companion all the way well i don't much care if you want another rebuff take it and welcome was my inward remark now sir what next this question though unspoken was no long unanswered after a few passing observations upon indifferent subjects he began in solemn tones the following appeal to my humanity it will be four years next april since i first saw you mrs huntingdon you may have forgotten the circumstance but i never can i admired you then most deeply but i dared not love you in the following autumn i saw so much of your perfections that i could not fail to love you though i dared not show it for upwards of three years i have endured a perfect martyrdom from the anguish of suppressed emotions intense and fruitless longings silent sorrow crushed hopes and trampled affections i have suffered more than i can tell or you imagine and you were the cause of it and not altogether the innocent cause my youth is wasting away my prospects are darkened my life is a desolate blank i have no rest day or night i am become a burden to myself and others and you might save me by a word a glance and will not do it is this right in the first place i don't believe you answered i in the second if you will be such a fool i can't hinder it if you affect replied he earnestly to regard as folly the best the strongest the most godlike impulses of our nature i don't believe you i know you are not the heartless icy being you pretend to be you had a heart once and you gave it to your husband when you found him utterly unworthy of the treasure you reclaimed it and you will not pretend that you love that sensual earthly-minded profligate so deeply so devotedly that you can never love another i know that there are feelings in your nature that have never yet been called forth i know too that in your present neglected lonely state you are and must be miserable you have it in your power to raise two human beings from a state of actual suffering to such unspeakable beatitude as only generous noble self-forgetting love can give for you can love me if you will you may tell me that you scorn and detest me 
but since you have set me the example of plain speaking i will answer that i do not believe you but you will not do it you choose rather to leave us miserable and you coolly tell me it is the will of god that we should remain so you may call this religion but i call it wild fanaticism there is another life both for you and for me said i if it be the will of god that we should sow in tears now it is only that we may reap in joy hereafter it is his will that we should not injure others by the gratification of our own earthly passions and you have a mother and sisters and friends who would be seriously injured by your disgrace and i too have friends whose peace of mind shall never be sacrificed to my enjoyment or yours either with my consent and if i were alone in the world i have still my god and my religion and i would sooner die than disgrace my calling and break my faith with heaven to obtain a few brief years of false and fleeting happiness happiness sure to end in misery even here for myself or any other there need be no disgrace no misery or sacrifice in any quarter persisted he i do not ask you to leave your home or defy the world's opinion but i need not repeat all his arguments i refuted them to the best of my power but that power was provokingly small at the moment for i was too much flurried with indignation and even shame that he should thus dare to address me to retain sufficient command of thought and language to enable me adequately to contend against his powerful sophistries finding however that he could not be silenced by reason and even covertly exulted in his seeming advantage and ventured to deride those assertions i had not the coolness to prove i changed my course and tried another plan do you really love me said i seriously pausing and looking him calmly in the face do i love you cried he truly i demanded his countenance brightened he thought his triumph was at hand he commenced a passionate protestation of the truth and fervour of his attachment which i cut short by another question but is it not a selfish love have you enough disinterested affection to enable you to sacrifice your own pleasure to mine i would give my life to serve you i don't want your life but have you enough real sympathy for my afflictions to induce you to make an effort to relieve them at the risk of a little discomfort to yourself try me and see if you have never mention this subject again you cannot recur to it in any way without doubling the weight of those sufferings you so feelingly deplore i have nothing left me but the solace of a good conscience and a hopeful trust in heaven and you labour continually to rob me of these if you persist i must regard you as my deadliest foe but hear me a moment no sir you said you would give your life to serve me i only ask your silence on one particular point i have spoken plainly and what i say i mean if you torment me in this way any more i must conclude that your protestations are entirely false and that you hate me in your heart as fervently as you profess to love me he bit his lip and bent his eyes upon the ground in silence for a while then i must leave you said he at length looking steadily upon me as if with the last hope of detecting some token of irrepressible anguish or dismay awakened by those solemn words i must leave you i cannot live here and be forever silent on the all-absorbing subject of my thoughts and wishes formerly i believe 
you spent but little of your time at home i answered it will do you no harm to absent yourself again for a while if that be really necessary if that be really possible he muttered and can you bid me go so coolly do you really wish it most certainly i do if you cannot see me without tormenting me as you have lately done i would gladly say farewell and never see you more he made no answer but bending from his horse held out his hand towards me i looked up at his face and saw therein such a look of genuine agony of soul that whether bitter disappointment or wounded pride or lingering love or burning wrath were uppermost i could not hesitate to put my hand in his as frankly as if i bade a friend farewell he grasped it very hard and immediately put spurs to his horse and galloped away very soon after i learned that he was gone to paris where he still is and the longer he stays there the better for me i thank god for this deliverance end of chapter eighteen end of volume two recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume three chapter one of the tenant of wildfell hall by anne bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume three chapter one the injured man december twentieth eighteen twenty six the fifth anniversary of my wedding day and i trust the last i shall spend under this roof my resolution is formed my plan concocted and already partly put in execution my conscience does not blame me but while the purpose ripens let me beguile a few of these long winter evenings in stating the case for my own satisfaction a dreary amusement enough but having the air of a useful occupation and being pursued as a task it will suit me better than a lighter one in september quiet grassdale was again alive with a party of ladies and gentlemen so called consisting of the same individuals as those invited the year before last with the addition of two or three others among whom were mrs hargrave and her younger daughter the gentleman and lady lowborough were invited for the pleasure and convenience of the host the other ladies i suppose for the sake of appearances and to keep me in check and make me discreet and civil in my demeanour but the ladies stayed only three weeks the gentlemen with two exceptions above two months for their hospitable entertainer was loath to part with them and be left alone with his bright intellect his stainless conscience and his loved and loving wife on the day of lady lowborough's arrival i followed her into her chamber and plainly told her that if i found reason to believe that she still continued her criminal connection with mr huntingdon i should think it my absolute duty to inform her husband of the circumstance or awaken his suspicions at least however painful it might be or however dreadful the consequences she was startled at first by the declaration so unexpected and so determinately yet calmly delivered but rallying in a moment she coolly replied that if i saw anything at all reprehensible or suspicious in her conduct she would freely give me leave to tell his lordship all about it willing to be satisfied with this i left her and certainly i saw nothing thenceforth particularly reprehensible or suspicious in her demeanour towards her host but then i had the other guests to attend to 
and i did not watch them narrowly for to confess the truth i feared to see anything between them i no longer regarded it as any concern of mine and if it was my duty to enlighten lord lowborough it was a painful duty and i dreaded to be called to perform it but my fears were brought to an end in a manner i had not anticipated one evening about a fortnight after the visitor's arrival i had retired into the library to snatch a few minutes respite from forced cheerfulness and wearisome discourse for after so long a period of seclusion dreary indeed as i had often found it i could not always bear to be doing violence to my feelings and goading my powers to talk and smile and listen and play the attentive hostess or even the cheerful friend i had just ensconced myself within the bow of the window and was looking out upon the west where the darkening hills rose sharply defined against the clear amber light of evening that gradually blended and faded away into the pure pale blue of the upper sky where one bright star was shining through as if to promise when that dying light is gone the world will not be left in darkness and they who trust in god whose minds are unbeclouded by the mists of unbelief and sin are never wholly comfortless when i heard a hurried step approaching and lord lowborough entered this room was still his favourite resort he flung the door to with unusual violence and cast his hat aside regardless where it fell what could be the matter with him his face was ghastly pale his eyes were fixed upon the ground his teeth clenched his forehead glistened with the dews of agony it was plain he knew his wrongs at last unconscious of my presence he began to pace the room in a state of fearful agitation violently wringing his hands and uttering low groans or incoherent ejaculations i made a movement to let him know that he was not alone but he was too preoccupied to notice it perhaps while his back was towards me i might cross the room and slip away unobserved i rose to make the attempt but then he perceived me he started and stood still a moment then wiped his streaming forehead and advancing towards me with a kind of unnatural composure said in a deep almost sepulchral tone mrs huntingdon i must leave you to-morrow to-morrow i repeated i do not ask the cause you know it then and you can be so calm said he surveying me with profound astonishment not unmingled with a kind of resentful bitterness as it appeared to me i have so long been aware of i paused in time and added of my husband's character that nothing shocks me but this how long have you been aware of this demanded he laying his clenched hand on the table beside him and looking me keenly and fixedly in the face i felt like a criminal not long i answered you knew it cried he with bitter vehemence and you did not tell me you helped to deceive me my lord i did not help to deceive you then why did you not tell me because i knew it would be painful to you i hoped she would return to her duty and then there would be no need to harrow your feelings with such oh god how long has this been going on how long has it been mrs huntingdon tell me i must know he exclaimed with intense and fearful eagerness two years i believe great heaven and she has duped me all this time he turned away with a suppressed groan of agony and paced the room again in a paroxysm of renewed agitation my heart smote me but i would try to console him though i knew not how to attempt it she is a wicked woman i said 
she has basely deceived and betrayed you she is as little worthy of your regret as she was of your affection let her injure you farther abstract yourself from her and stand alone and you madam said he sternly arresting his walk and turning round upon me you have injured me too by this ungenerous concealment there was a sudden revulsion in my feelings something rose within me and urged me to resent this harsh return for my heartfelt sympathy and defend myself with answering severity happily i did not yield to the impulse i saw his anguish as suddenly smiting his forehead he turned abruptly to the window and looking upward at the placid sky murmured passionately oh god that i might die and felt that to add one drop of bitterness to that already overflowing cup would be ungenerous indeed and yet i fear there was more coldness than gentleness in the quiet tone of my reply i might offer many excuses that some would admit to be valid but i will not attempt to enumerate them i know them said he hastily you would say that it was no business of yours that i ought to have taken care of myself that if my own blindness has led me into this pit of hell i have no right to blame another for giving me credit for a larger amount of sagacity than i possessed i confess i was wrong continued i without regarding this bitter interruption but whether want of courage or mistaken kindness was the cause of my error i think you blame me too severely i told lady lowborough two weeks ago the very hour she came that i should certainly think it my duty to inform you if she continued to deceive you she gave me full liberty to do so if i should see anything reprehensible or suspicious in her conduct i have seen nothing and i trusted she had altered her course he continued gazing from the window while i spoke and did not answer but stung by the recollections my words awakened stamped his foot upon the floor ground his teeth and corrugated his brow like one under the influence of acute physical pain it was wrong it was wrong he muttered at length nothing can excuse it nothing can atone for it for nothing can recall those years of cursed credulity nothing obliterate them nothing nothing he repeated in a whisper whose despairing bitterness precluded all resentment when i put the case to myself i own it was wrong i answered but i can only now regret that i did not see it in this light before and that as you say nothing can recall the past something in my voice or in the spirit of this answer seemed to alter his mood turning towards me and attentively surveying my face by the dim light he said in a milder tone than he had yet employed you too have suffered i suppose i suffered much at first when was that two years ago and two years hence you will be as calm as i am now and far far happier i trust for you are a man and free to act as you please something like a smile but a very bitter one crossed his face for a moment you have not been happy lately he said with a kind of effort to regain composure and a determination to waive the further discussion of his own calamity happy i repeated almost provoked at such a question could i be so with such a husband i have noticed a change in your appearance since the first years of your marriage pursued he i observed it to to that infernal demon he muttered between his teeth and he said it was your own sour temper that was eating away your bloom it was making you old and ugly before your time and had already made his fireside as comfortless as a convent cell you smile mrs huntingdon nothing moves you 
i wish my nature were as calm as yours my nature was not originally calm said i i have learned to appear so by dint of hard lessons and many repeated efforts at this juncture mr hattersley burst into the room hello lowborough he began oh i beg your pardon he exclaimed on seeing me i didn't know it was a tete-a-tete cheer up man he continued giving lord lowborough a thump on the back which caused the latter to recoil from him with looks of ineffable disgust and irritation come i want to speak with you a bit speak then but i'm not sure it would be quite agreeable to the lady what i have to say then it would not be agreeable to me said his lordship turning to leave the room yes it would cried the other following him into the hall if you've the heart of a man it would be the very ticket for you it's just this my lad he continued rather lowering his voice but not enough to prevent me from hearing every word he said though the half-closed door stood between us i think you're an ill-used man nay now don't flare up i don't want to offend you it's only my rough way of talking i must speak right out you know or else not at all and i'm come stop now let me explain i'm come to offer you my services for though huntingdon is my friend he's a devilish scamp as we all know and i'll be your friend for the nonce i know what it is you want to make matters straight it's just to exchange a shot with him and then you'll feel yourself all right again and if an accident happens why that'll be all right too i dare say to a desperate fellow like you come now give me your hand and don't look so black upon it name time and place and i'll manage the rest that answered the more low deliberate voice of lord lowborough is just the remedy my own heart or the devil within it suggested to meet him and not to sever without blood whether i or he should fall or both it would be an inexpressible relief to me if just so well then no exclaimed his lordship with deep determined emphasis though i hate him from my heart and should rejoice at any calamity that could befall him i'll leave him to god and though i abhor my own life i'll leave that too to him that gave it but you see in this case pleaded hattersley i'll not hear you exclaimed his companion hastily turning away not another word i've enough to do against the fiend within me well then you're a white-livered fool and i wash my hands of you grumbled the tempter as he swung himself round and departed right right lord lowborough cried i darting out and clasping his burning hand as he was moving away to the stairs i begin to think the world is not worthy of you not understanding this sudden ebullition he turned upon me with a stare of gloomy bewildered amazement that made me ashamed of the impulse to which i had yielded but soon a more humanized expression dawned upon his countenance and before i could withdraw my hand he pressed it kindly while a gleam of genuine feeling flashed from his eyes as he murmured god help us both amen responded i and we parted i returned to the drawing-room where doubtless my presence would be expected by most desired by one or two in the anteroom was mr hattersley railing against lord lowborough's poltroonery before a select audience that is mr huntingdon who was lounging against the table exulting in his own treacherous villainy and laughing his victim to scorn and mr grimsby standing by quietly rubbing his hands and chuckling with fiendish satisfaction at the glance i gave them in passing hattersley stopped short in his animadversions and stared like a bull calf grimsby glowered upon me with a leer of malignant ferocity 
and my husband muttered a coarse and brutal malediction in the drawing-room i found lady lowborough evidently in no very enviable state of mind and struggling hard to conceal her discomposure by an overstrained affectation of unusual cheerfulness and vivacity very uncalled for under the circumstances for she had herself given the company to understand that her husband had received unpleasant intelligence from home which necessitated his immediate departure and that he had suffered it so to bother his mind that it had brought on a bilious headache owing to which and the preparations he judged necessary to hasten his departure she believed they would not have the pleasure of seeing him to-night however she asserted it was only a business concern and so she did not intend it should trouble her she was just saying this as i entered and she darted upon me such a glance of hardihood and defiance as at once astonished and revolted me but i am troubled continued she and vexed too for i think it my duty to accompany his lordship and of course i am very sorry to part with all my kind friends so unexpectedly and so soon and yet annabella said esther who was sitting beside her i never saw you in better spirits in my life precisely so my love because i wish to make the best of your society since it appears this is to be the last night i am to enjoy it till heaven knows when and i wish to leave a good impression on you all she glanced round and seeing her aunt's eye fixed upon her rather too scrutinizingly as she probably thought she started up and continued to which end i'll give you a song shall i aunt shall i mrs huntingdon shall i ladies and gentlemen all very well i'll do my best to amuse you she and lord lowborough occupied the apartments next to mine i know not how she passed the night but i lay awake the greater part of it listening to his heavy step pacing monotonously up and down his dressing-room which was nearest my chamber once i heard him pause and throw something out of the window with a passionate ejaculation and in the morning after they were gone a keen-bladed clasp-knife was found on the grass-plot below a razor likewise was snapped in two and thrust deep into the cinders of the grate but partially corroded by the decaying embers so strong had been the temptation to end his miserable life so determined his resolution to resist it my heart bled for him as i lay listening to that ceaseless tread hitherto i had thought too much of myself too little of him now i forgot my own afflictions and thought only of his of the ardent affection so miserably wasted the fond faith so cruelly betrayed the no i will not attempt to enumerate his wrongs but i hated his wife and my husband more intensely than ever and not for my sake but for his that man i thought is an object of scorn to his friends and the nice judging world the false wife and the treacherous friend who have wronged him are not so despised and degraded as he and his refusal to avenge his wrongs has removed him yet farther beyond the range of sympathy and blackened his name with a deeper disgrace he knows this and it doubles his burden of woe he sees the injustice of it but he cannot bear up against it he lacks that sustaining power of self-esteem which leads a man exulting in his own integrity to defy the malice of traducing foes and give them scorn for scorn or better still which raises him above earth's foul and turbulent vapours to repose in heaven's eternal sunshine he knows that god is just but cannot see his justice now 
he knows this life is short and yet death seems insufferably far away he believes there is a future state but so absorbing is the agony of this that he cannot realize its rapturous repose he can but bow his head to the storm and cling blindly despairingly to what he knows to be right like the shipwrecked mariner cleaving to a raft blinded deafened bewildered he feels the waves sweep over him and sees no prospect of escape and yet he knows he has no hope but this and still while life and sense remain concentrates all his energies to keep it oh that i had a friend's right to comfort him and tell him that i never esteemed him so highly as i do this night they departed early in the morning before anyone else was down except myself and just as i was leaving my room lord lowborough was descending to take his place in the carriage where his lady was already ensconced and arthur or mr huntingdon as i prefer calling him for the other is my child's name had the gratuitous insolence to come out in his dressing-gown to bid his friend good-bye what going already lowborough said he well good morning he smilingly offered his hand i think the other would have knocked him down had he not instinctively started back before that bony fist quivering with rage and clenched till the knuckles gleamed white and glistening through the skin looking upon him with a countenance livid with furious hate lord lowborough muttered between his closed teeth a deadly execration he would not have uttered had he been calm enough to choose his words and departed i call that an unchristian spirit now said the villain but i'd never give up an old friend for the sake of a wife you may have mine if you like and i call that handsome i can do no more than offer restitution can i but lowborough had gained the bottom of the stairs and was now crossing the hall and mr huntingdon leaning over the banisters called out give my love to annabella and i wish you both a happy journey and withdrew laughing to his chamber he subsequently expressed himself rather glad she was gone she was so deuced imperious and exacting said he now i shall be my own man again and feel rather more at my ease i know nothing more of lord lowborough's subsequent proceedings but what i have heard from millicent who though she is ignorant of the cause of his separation from her cousin has informed me that such is the case that they keep entirely separate establishments that she leads a gay dashing life in town and country while he lives in strict seclusion at his old castle in the north there are two children both of whom he keeps under his own protection the son and heir is a promising child nearly the age of my arthur and no doubt a source of some hope and comfort to his father but the other a little girl between one and two with blue eyes and light auburn hair he probably keeps from conscientious motives alone thinking it wrong to abandon her to the teaching and example of such a woman as her mother that mother never loved children and has so little natural affection for her own that i question whether she will not regard it as a relief to be thus entirely separated from them and delivered from the trouble and responsibility of their charge not many days after the departure of lord and lady lowborough the rest of the ladies withdrew the light of their presence from grassdale perhaps they might have stayed longer but neither host nor hostess pressed them to prolong their visit in fact the former showed too plainly that he should be glad to get rid of them and mrs hargrave retired with her daughters and her grandchildren there are three of them now to the grove but the gentlemen remained 
mr huntingdon as i intimated before was determined to keep them as long as he could and being thus delivered from restraint they gave a loose to all their innate madness folly and brutality and made the house night after night one scene of riot uproar and confusion who among them behaved the worst or who the best i cannot distinctly say for from the moment i discovered how things would be i formed the resolution of retreating upstairs or locking myself into the library the instant i withdrew from the dining-room and not coming near them again till breakfast but this i must say for mr hargrave that from all i could see of him he was a model of decency sobriety and gentlemanly manners in comparison with the rest he did not join the party till a week or ten days after the arrival of the other guests for he was still on the continent when they came and i cherished the hope that he would not accept the invitation except that he did however but his conduct towards me for the first few weeks was exactly what i should have wished it to be perfectly civil and respectful without any affectation of despondency or dejection and sufficiently distant without haughtiness or any of such remarkable stiffness or iciness of demeanour as might be calculated to disturb or puzzle his sister or call forth the investigation of his mother End of volume three, chapter one, recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume three, chapter two of the Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume three, chapter two, a scheme of escape my greatest source of uneasiness in this time of trial was my son whom his father and his father's friends delighted to encourage in all the embryo vices a little child can show and to instruct in all the evil habits he could acquire in a word to make a man of him was one of their staple amusements and i need say no more to justify my alarm on his account and my determination to deliver him at any hazard from the hands of such instructors i first attempted to keep him always with me or in the nursery and gave rachel particular injunctions never to let him come down to dessert as long as these gentlemen stayed but it was no use these orders were immediately countermanded and overruled by his father he was not going to have the little father moped to death between an old nurse and a cursed fool of a mother so the little fellow came down every evening in spite of his cross mamma and learnt to tipple wine like papa to swear like mr hattersley and to have his own way like a man and sent mamma to the devil when she tried to prevent him to see such things done with the roguish naivete of that pretty little child and hear such things spoken by that small infantile voice was as peculiarly piquant and irresistibly droll to them as it was inexpressibly distressing and painful to me and when he had set the table in a roar he would look round delightedly upon them all and add his shrill laugh to theirs but if that beaming blue eye rested on me its light would vanish for a moment and he would say in some concern mamma why don't you laugh make her laugh papa she never will hence was i obliged to stay among these human brutes watching an opportunity to get my child away from them instead of leaving them immediately after the removal of the cloth as i should always otherwise have done 
he was never willing to go and i frequently had to carry him away by force for which he thought me very cruel and unjust and sometimes his father would insist upon my letting him remain and then i would leave him to his kind friends and retire to indulge my bitterness and despair alone or to rack my brains for a remedy to this great evil but here again i must do mr hargrave the justice to acknowledge that i never saw him laugh at the child's misdemeanours nor heard him utter a word of encouragement to his aspirations after manly accomplishments but when anything very extraordinary was said or done by the infant profligate i noticed at times a peculiar expression in his face that i could neither interpret nor define a slight twitching about the muscles of the mouth a sudden flash in the eye as he darted a sudden glance at the child and then at me and then i could fancy there arose a gleam of hard keen sombre satisfaction in his countenance at the look of impotent wrath and anguish he was too certain to behold in mine but on one occasion when arthur had been behaving particularly ill and mr huntingdon and his guests had been particularly provoking and insulting to me in their encouragement of him and i particularly anxious to get him out of the room and on the very point of demeaning myself by a burst of uncontrollable passion mr hargrave suddenly rose from his seat with an aspect of stern determination lifted the child from his father's knee where he was sitting half tipsy cocking his head and laughing at me and execrating me with words he little knew the meaning of handed him out of the room and setting him down in the hall held the door open for me gravely bowed as i withdrew and closed it after me i heard high words exchanged between him and his already half inebriated host as i departed leading away my bewildered and disconcerted boy but this should not continue my child must not be abandoned to this corruption better far that he should live in poverty and obscurity with a fugitive mother than in luxury and affluence with such a father these guests might not be with us long but they would return again and he the most injurious of the whole his child's worst enemy would still remain i could endure it for myself but for my son it must be borne no longer the world's opinion and the feelings of my friends must be alike unheeded here at least alike unable to deter me from my duty but where should i find an asylum and how obtain subsistence for us both oh i would take my precious charge at early dawn take the coach to m flee to the port of blank cross the atlantic and seek a quiet humble home in new england where i would support myself and him by the labour of my hands the pallet and the easel my darling playmates once must be my sober toil fellows now but was i sufficiently skilful as an artist to obtain my livelihood in a strange land without friends and without recommendation no i must wait a little i must labour hard to improve my talent and to produce something worth while as a specimen of my powers something to speak favourably for me whether as an actual painter or a teacher brilliant success of course i did not look for but some degree of security from positive failure was indispensable i must not take my son to starve and then i must have money for the journey the passage and some little to support us in our retreat in case i should be unsuccessful at first and not too little either for who could tell how long i might have to struggle with the indifference or neglect of others 
or my own inexperience or inability to suit their tastes what should i do then apply to my brother and explain my circumstances and my resolves to him no no even if i told him all my grievances which i should be very reluctant to do he would be certain to disapprove of the step and it would seem like madness to him as it would to my uncle and aunt or to millicent no i must have patience and gather a hoard of my own rachel should be my only confidante i thought i could persuade her into the scheme and she should help me first to find out a picture dealer in some distant town then through her means i would privately sell what pictures i had on hand that would do for such a purpose and some of those i should thereafter paint besides this i would contrive to dispose of my jewels not the family jewels but the few i brought with me from home and those my uncle gave me on my marriage a few months arduous toil might well be borne by me with such an end in view and in the interim my son could not be much more injured than he was already having formed this resolution i immediately set to work to accomplish it i might possibly have been induced to wax cool upon it afterwards or perhaps to keep weighing the pros and cons in my mind till the latter overbalanced the former and i was driven to relinquish the project altogether or delay the execution of it to an indefinite period had not something occurred to confirm me in that determination to which i still adhere in which i still think i did well to form and shall do better to execute since lord lowborough's departure i had regarded the library as entirely my own a secure retreat at all hours of the day none of our gentlemen had the smallest pretensions to a literary taste except mr hargrave and he at present was quite contented with the newspapers and periodicals of the day and if by any chance he should look in here i felt assured he would soon depart on seeing me for instead of becoming less cool and distant towards me he had become decidedly more so since the departure of his mother and sisters which was just what i wished here then i set up my easel and here i worked at my canvas from daylight till dusk with very little intermission saving when pure necessity or my duties to little arthur called me away for i still thought proper to devote some portion of every day exclusively to his instruction and amusement but contrary to my expectation on the third morning while i was thus employed mr hargrave did look in and did not immediately withdraw on seeing me he apologized for his intrusion and said he was only come for a book but when he had got it he condescended to cast a glance over my picture being a man of taste he had something to say on this subject as well as another and having modestly commented on it without much encouragement from me he proceeded to expatiate on the art in general receiving no encouragement in that either he dropped it but did not depart you don't give us much of your company mrs huntingdon observed he after a brief pause during which i went on coolly mixing and tempering my colours and i cannot wonder at it for you must be heartily sick of us all i myself am so thoroughly ashamed of my companions and so weary of their irrational conversation and pursuits now that there is no one to humanize them and keep them in check since you have justly abandoned us to our own devices that i think i shall presently withdraw from amongst them probably within this week and i cannot suppose you will regret my departure he paused i did not answer probably he added with a smile 
your only regret on the subject will be that i do not take all my companions along with me i flatter myself at times that though among them i am not of them but it is natural that you should be glad to get rid of me i may regret this but i cannot blame you for it i shall not rejoice at your departure for you can conduct yourself like a gentleman said i thinking it but right to make some acknowledgment for his good behaviour but i must confess i shall rejoice to bid adieu to the rest inhospitable as it may appear no one can blame you for such an avowal replied he gravely not even the gentlemen themselves i imagine i'll just tell you he continued as if actuated by a sudden resolution what was said last night in the dining-room after you left us perhaps you will not mind it as you're so very philosophical on certain points he added with a slight sneer they were talking about lord lowborough and his delectable lady the cause of whose sudden departure is no secret amongst them and her character is so well known to them all that nearly related to me as she is i could not attempt to defend it god curse me he muttered par parenthese if i don't have vengeance for this if the villain must disgrace the family must he blazon it abroad to every low-bred knave of his acquaintance i beg your pardon mrs huntingdon well they were talking of these things and some of them remarked that as she was separated from her husband he might see her again when he pleased thank you said he i've had enough of her for the present i'll not trouble to see her unless she comes to me then what do you mean to do huntingdon when we're gone said ralph hattersley do you mean to turn from the error of your ways and be a good husband a good father and so forth as i do when i get shut of you and all these rollicking devils you call your friends i think it's time and your wife is fifty times too good for you you know and he added some praise of you which you would not thank me for repeating nor him for uttering proclaiming it aloud as he did without delicacy or discrimination in an audience where it seemed profanation to utter your name himself utterly incapable of understanding or appreciating your real excellencies huntingdon meanwhile sat quietly drinking his wine or looking smilingly into his glass and offering no interruption or reply till hattersley shouted out do you hear me man yes go on said he nay i've done replied the other i only want to know if you intend to take my advice what advice to turn over a new leaf you double-dyed scoundrel shouted ralph and beg your wife's pardon and be a good boy for the future my wife what wife i have no wife replied huntingdon looking innocently up from his glass or if i have look you gentlemen i value her so highly that any one among you that can fancy her may have her and welcome you may by jove and my blessing into the bargain i <clears throat> someone asked if he really meant what he said upon which he solemnly swore he did and no mistake what do you think of that mrs huntingdon asked mr hargrave after a short pause during which i had felt he was keenly examining my half-averted face i say replied i calmly that what he prizes so lightly will not be long in his possession you cannot mean that you will break your heart and die for the detestable conduct of an infamous villain like that well, by no means my heart is too thoroughly dried to be broken in a hurry and i mean to live as long as i can will you leave him then yes when and how asked he eagerly when i am ready and how i can manage it most effectually but your child 
my child goes with me he will not allow it i shall not ask him ah then it is a secret flight you meditate but with whom mrs huntingdon with my son and possibly his nurse alone and unprotected but where can you go what can you do he will follow you and bring you back i have laid my plans too well for that let me once get clear of grassdale and i shall consider myself safe mr hargrave advanced one step towards me looked me in the face and drew in his breath to speak but that look that heightened colour that sudden sparkle of the eye made my blood rise in wrath i abruptly turned away and snatching up my brush began to dash away at my canvas with rather too much energy for the good of the picture mrs huntingdon said he with bitter solemnity you are cruel cruel to me cruel to yourself mr hargrave remember your promise i must speak my heart will burst if i don't i have been silent long enough and you must hear me cried he boldly intercepting my retreat to the door you tell me you owe no allegiance to your husband he openly declares himself weary of you and calmly gives you up to anybody that will take you you are about to leave him no one will believe that you go alone all the world will say she has left him at last and who can wonder at it few can blame her fewer still can pity him but who is the companion of her flight thus you will have no credit for your virtue if you call it such even your best friends will not believe in it because it is monstrous and not to be credited but by those who suffer from the effects of it such cruel torments that they know it to be indeed reality but what can you do in the cold rough world alone you a young and inexperienced woman delicately nurtured and utterly in a word you would advise me to stay where i am interrupted i well i'll see about it by all means leave him cried he earnestly but not alone helen let me protect you never while heaven spares my reason replied i snatching away the hand he had presumed to seize and press between his own but he was in for it now he had fairly broken the barrier he was completely roused and determined to hazard all for victory i must not be denied exclaimed he vehemently and seizing both my hands he held them very tight but dropped upon his knee and looked up in my face with a half imploring half imperious gaze you have no reason now you are flying in the face of heaven's decrees god has designed me to be your comfort and protector i feel it i know it as certainly as if a voice from heaven declared ye twain shall be one flesh and you spurn me from you let me go mr hargrave said i sternly but he only tightened his grasp let me go i repeated quivering with indignation his face was almost opposite the window as he knelt with a slight start i saw him glance towards it and then a gleam of malicious triumph lit up his countenance looking over my shoulder i beheld a shadow just retiring round the corner that is grimsby said he deliberately he will report what he has seen to huntingdon and all the rest with such embellishments as he thinks proper he has no love for you mrs huntingdon no reverence for your sex no belief in virtue no admiration for its image he will give such a version of this story as will leave no doubt at all about your character in the minds of those who hear it your fair fame is gone and nothing that i or you can say can ever retrieve it 
but give me the power to protect you and show me the villain that dares to insult no one has ever dared to insult me as you are doing now said i at length releasing my hands and recoiling from him i do not insult you cried he i worship you you are my angel my divinity i lay my powers at your feet and you must and shall accept them he exclaimed impetuously starting to his feet i will be your consoler and defender and if your conscience upbraid you for it say i overcame you and you could not choose but yield i never saw a man so terribly excited he precipitated himself towards me i snatched up my palette knife and held it against him this startled him he stood and gazed at me in astonishment i dare say i looked as fierce and resolute as he i moved to the bell and put my hand upon the cord this tamed him still more with a half authoritative half deprecating wave of the hand he sought to deter me from ringing stand off then said i he stepped back and listen to me i don't like you i continued as deliberately and emphatically as i could to give the greater efficacy to my words and if i were divorced from my husband or if he were dead i would not marry you there now i hope you're satisfied his face grew blanched with anger i am satisfied he replied with bitter emphasis that you are the most cold-hearted unnatural ungrateful woman i ever yet beheld ungrateful sir ungrateful no mr hargrave i am not for all the good you ever did me or ever wished to do i most sincerely thank you for all the evil you have done me and all you would have done i pray god to pardon you and make you of a better mind here the door was thrown open and messrs huntingdon and hattersley appeared without the latter remained in the hall busy with his ramrod and his gun the former walked in and stood with his back to the fire surveying mr hargrave and me particularly the former with a smile of insupportable meaning accompanied as it was by the impudence of his brazen brow and the sly malicious twinkle of his eye well sir said hargrave interrogatively and with the air of one prepared to stand on the defensive well sir returned his host we want to know if you are at liberty to join us in a go at the pheasants walter interposed hattersley from without come there shall be nothing shot besides except a puss or two i'll vouch for that walter did not answer but walked to the window to collect his faculties arthur uttered a low whistle and followed him with his eyes a slight flush of anger rose to hargrave's cheek but in a moment he turned calmly round and said carelessly i came here to bid farewell to mrs huntingdon and tell her i must go to-morrow you're mighty sudden in your resolution what takes you off so soon may i ask business returned he repelling the other's incredulous sneer with a glance of scornful defiance very good was the reply and hargrave walked away thereupon mr huntingdon gathering his coat laps under his arms and setting his shoulder against the mantelpiece turned to me and addressing me in a low voice scarcely above his breath poured forth a volley of the vilest and grossest abuse it was possible for the imagination to conceive or the tongue to utter i did not attempt to interrupt him but my spirit kindled within me and when he had done i replied if your accusation were true mr huntingdon how dare you blame me she's hit it by joe cried hattersley rearing his gun against the wall 
and stepping into the room he took his precious friend by the arm and attempted to drag him away come my lad he muttered true or false you've no right to blame her you know nor him either after what you said last night so come along there was something implied here that i could not endure dare you suspect me mr hattersley said i almost beside myself with fury nay nay i suspect nobody it's all right it's all right so come along huntingdon you blackguard she can't deny it cried the gentleman thus addressed grinning in mingled rage and triumph she can't deny it if her life depended on it and muttering some more abusive language he walked into the hall and took up his hat and gun from the table i scorn to justify myself to you said i but you turning to hattersley if you presume to have any doubts on the subject ask mr hargrave at this they simultaneously burst into a rude laugh that made my whole frame tingle to the fingers ends where is he i'll ask him myself said i advancing towards them suppressing a new burst of merriment hattersley pointed to the outer door it was half open his brother-in-law was standing on the front without mr hargrave will you please to step this way said i he turned and looked at me in grave surprise step this way if you please i repeated in so determined a manner that he could not or did not choose to resist its authority somewhat reluctantly he ascended the steps and advanced a pace or two into the hall and tell those gentlemen i continued these men whether or not i yielded to your solicitations i don't understand you mrs huntingdon you do understand me sir and i charge you upon your honour as a gentleman if you have any to answer truly did i or did i not no muttered he turning away speak up sir they can't hear you did i grant your request you did not no i'll be sworn she didn't said hattersley or he'd never look so black i'm willing to grant you the satisfaction of a gentleman huntingdon said mr hargrave calmly addressing his host but with a bitter sneer upon his countenance go to the deuce replied the latter with an impatient jerk of the head hargrave withdrew with a look of cold disdain saying you know where to find me should you feel disposed to send a friend muttered oaths and curses were all the answer this intimation obtained now huntingdon you see said hattersley clear as the day i don't care what he sees said i or what he imagines but you mr hattersley when you hear my name belied and slandered will you defend it i will blast me if i don't i instantly departed and shut myself into the library what could possess me to make such a request of such a man i cannot tell but drowning men catch at straws they have driven me desperate between them i hardly knew what i said there was no other to preserve my name from being blackened and aspersed among this nest of boon companions and through them perhaps into the world and beside my abandoned wretch of a husband the base malignant grimsby and the false villain hargrave this boorish ruffian coarse and brutal as he was shone like a glow-worm in the dark among its fellow worms what a scene was this could i ever have imagined that i should be doomed to bear such insults under my own roof to hear such things spoken in my presence nay spoken to me and of me and by those who arrogated to themselves the name of gentlemen and could i have imagined that i should have been able to endure it as calmly 
and to repel their insults as firmly and as boldly as i had done a hardness such as this is taught by rough experience and despair alone such thoughts as these chased one another through my mind as i paced to and fro the room and longed oh how i longed to take my child and leave them now without an hour's delay but it could not be there was work before me hard work that must be done then let me do it said i and lose not a moment in vain repinings and idle chafings against my fate and those who influence it and conquering my agitation with a powerful effort i immediately resumed my task and laboured hard all day mr hargrave did depart on the morrow and i have never seen him since the others stayed on for two or three weeks longer but i kept aloof from them as much as possible and still continued my labour and have continued it with almost unabated ardour to the present day i soon acquainted rachel with my design confiding all my motives and intentions to her ear and much to my agreeable surprise found little difficulty in persuading her to enter into my views she is a sober cautious woman but she so hates her master and so loves her mistress and her nursling that after several ejaculations a few faint objections and many tears and lamentations that i should be brought to such a pass she applauded my resolution and consented to aid me with all her might on one condition only that she might share my exile otherwise she was utterly inexorable regarding it as perfect madness for me and arthur to go alone with touching generosity she modestly offered to aid me with her little hoard of savings hoping i would excuse her for the liberty but really if i would do her the favour to accept it as a loan she should be very happy of course i could not think of such a thing but now thank heaven i have gathered a little hoard of my own and my preparations are so far advanced that i am looking forward to a speedy emancipation only let the stormy severity of this winter weather be somewhat abated and then some morning mr huntingdon will come down to a solitary breakfast-table and perhaps be clamouring through the house for his invisible wife and child when they are some fifty miles on their way to the western world or it may be more for we shall leave him hours before the dawn and it is not probable he will discover the loss of both until the day is far advanced i am fully alive to the evils that may and must result upon the step i am about to take but i never waver in my resolution because i never forget my son it was only this morning while i pursued my usual employment he was sitting at my feet quietly playing with the shreds of canvas i had thrown upon the carpet but his mind was otherwise occupied for in a while he looked up wistfully in my face and gravely asked mamma why are you wicked who told you i was wicked love rachel no arthur rachel never said so i am certain well then it was papa replied he thoughtfully then after a reflective pause he added at least i'll tell you how it was i got to know when i'm with papa if i say mamma wants me or mamma says i'm not to do something that he tells me to do he always says mamma be damned and rachel says it's only wicked people that are damned so mamma that's why i think you must be wicked and i wish you wouldn't my dear child i am not those are bad words and wicked people often say them of others better than themselves those words cannot make people be damned nor show that they deserve it god will judge us by our own thoughts and deeds 
not by what others say about us and when you hear such words spoken arthur remember never to repeat them it is wicked to say such things of others not to have them said against you then it's papa that's wicked said he ruefully papa is wrong to say such things and you will be very wrong to imitate him now that you know better what is imitate to do as he does does he know better perhaps he does but that is nothing to you if he doesn't you ought to tell him mamma i have told him the little moralist paused and pondered i tried in vain to divert his mind from the subject i'm sorry papa's wicked said he mournfully at length for i don't want him to go to hell and so saying he burst into tears i consoled him with the hope that perhaps his papa would alter and become good before he died but is it not time to deliver him from such a parent End of Volume 3, Chapter 2 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine Volume 3, Chapter 3 Of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine Volume 3 chapter three a misadventure january tenth eighteen twenty seven while writing the above yesterday evening i sat in the drawing-room mr huntingdon was present but as i thought asleep on the sofa behind me he had risen however unknown to me and actuated by some base spirit of curiosity been looking over my shoulder for i know not how long for when i had laid aside my pen and was about to close the book he suddenly placed his hand upon it and saying with your leave my dear i'll have a look at this forcibly wrested it from me and drawing a chair to the table composedly sat down to examine it turning back leaf after leaf to find an explanation of what he had read unluckily for me he was more sober that night than he usually is at such an hour of course i did not leave him to pursue this occupation in quiet I made several attempts to snatch the book from his hands, but he held it too firmly for that. I upbraided him in bitterness and scorn for his mean and dishonorable conduct, but that had no effect upon him. And finally I extinguished both the candles, but he only wheeled round to the fire, and raising a blaze sufficient for his purposes, calmly continued the investigation. I had serious thoughts of getting a pitcher of water and extinguishing that light too but it was evident his curiosity was too keenly excited to be quenched by that and the more i manifested my anxiety to baffle his scrutiny the greater would be his determination to persist in it besides it was too late it seems very interesting love said he lifting his head and turning to where i stood wringing my hands in silent rage and anguish but it's rather long i'll look at it some other time and meanwhile i'll trouble you for your keys my dear what keys the keys of your cabinet desk drawers and whatever else you possess said he rising and holding out his hand i've not got them i replied the key of my desk in fact was at that moment in the lock and the others were attached to it then you must send for them said he and if that old bitch rachel doesn't immediately deliver them up she tramps bag and baggage to-morrow she doesn't know where they are i answered quietly placing my hand upon them and taking them from the desk as i thought unobserved 
i know but i shall not give them up without a reason and i know too said he suddenly seizing my closed hand and rudely abstracting them from it he then took up one of the candles and relighted it by thrusting it into the fire now then sneered he we must have a confiscation of property but first let us take a peep into the studio and putting the keys into his pocket he walked into the library i followed whether with the dim idea of preventing mischief or only to know the worst i can hardly tell my painting materials were laid together on the corner table ready for tomorrow's use and only covered with a cloth he soon spied them out and putting down the candle deliberately proceeded to cast them into the fire palette paints bladders pencils brushes varnish i saw them all consumed the palette knives snapped in two the oil and turpentine sent hissing and roaring up the chimney he then rang the bell benson take those things away said he pointing to the easel canvas and stretcher and tell the housemaid she may kindle the fire with them your mistress won't want them any more benson paused aghast and looked at me take them away benson said i and his master muttered an oath and this and all sir said the astonished servant referring to the half-finished picture that and all replied the master and the things were cleared away mr huntingdon then went upstairs i did not attempt to follow him but remained seated in the armchair speechless tearless and almost motionless till he returned about half an hour after and walking up to me held the candle in my face and peered into my eyes with looks and laughter too insulting to be borne with a sudden stroke of my hand i dashed the candle to the floor hello muttered he starting back she's the very devil for spite did ever any mortal see such eyes they shine in the dark like a cat's oh you're a sweet one so saying he gathered up the candle in the candlestick the former being broken as well as extinguished he rang for another benson your mistress has broken the candle bring another you expose yourself finely observed i as the man departed i didn't say i'd broken it did i returned he he then threw my keys into my lap saying there you'll find nothing gone but your money and the jewels and a few little trifles i thought it advisable to take into my own possession lest your mercantile spirit should be tempted to turn them into gold i've left you a few sovereigns in your purse which i expect to last you through the month at all events when you want more you will be so good as to give me an account of how that's spent i shall put you upon a small monthly allowance in future for your own private expenses and you needn't trouble yourself any more about my concerns i shall look out for a steward my dear i won't expose you to the temptation and as for the household matters mrs greaves must be very particular in keeping her accounts we must go upon an entirely new plan what great discovery have you made now mr huntingdon have i attempted to defraud you not in money matters exactly it seems but it's best to keep out of the way of temptation here benson entered with the candles and there followed a brief interval of silence i sitting still in my chair and he standing with his back to the fire silently triumphing in my despair and so said he at length you thought to disgrace me did you by running away and turning artist and supporting yourself by the labour of your hands forsooth and you thought to rob me of my son too and bring him up to be a dirty yankee tradesman or a low beggarly painter yes 
to obviate his becoming such a gentleman as his father it's well you couldn't keep your own secret ha <laughs> it's well these women must be blabbing if they haven't a friend to talk to they must whisper their secrets to the fishes or write them on the sand or something and it's well too i wasn't over full to-night now i think of it or i might have snoozed away and never dreamt of looking what my sweet lady was about or i might have lacked the sense or the power to carry my point like a man as i have done leaving him to his self-congratulations i rose to secure my manuscript for i now remembered it had been left upon the drawing-room table and i determined if possible to save myself the humiliation of seeing it in his hands again i could not bear the idea of his amusing himself over my secret thoughts and recollections though to be sure he would find little good of himself therein indicted except in the former part and oh i would sooner burn it all than he should read what i had written when i was such a fool as to love him and by the by cried he as i was leaving the room you'd better tell that damned old sneak of a nurse to keep out of my way for a day or two i pay her her wages and send her packing to-morrow but i know she'd do more mischief out of the house than in it and as i departed he went on cursing and abusing my faithful friend and servant with epithets i will not defile this paper with repeating i went to her as soon as i had put away my book and told her how our project was defeated she was as much distressed and horrified as i was and more so than i was that night for i was partly stunned by the blow and partly excited and supported against it by the bitterness of my wrath but in the morning when i woke without that cheering hope that had been my secret comfort and support so long and all this day when i have wandered about restless and objectless shunning my husband shrinking even from my child knowing that i am unfit to be his teacher or companion hoping nothing for his future life and fervently wishing he had never been born i felt the full extent of my calamity and i feel it now i know that day after day such feelings will return upon me i am a slave a prisoner but that is nothing if it were myself alone i would not complain but i am forbidden to rescue my son from ruin and what was once my only consolation is become the crowning source of my despair have i no faith in god i try to look to him and raise my heart to heaven but it will cleave to the dust i can only say he hath hedged me about that i cannot get out he hath made my chain heavy he hath filled me with bitterness he hath made me drunken with wormwood i forget to add but though he cause grief yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies for he doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men i ought to think of this and if there be nothing but sorrow for me in this world what is the longest life of misery to a whole eternity of peace and for my little arthur has he no friend but me who was it said it is not the will of your father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish end of volume three chapter three recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume three chapter four of the tenant of wildfell hall by anne bronte this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine volume three chapter four hope springs eternal in the human breast march twentieth 
having now got rid of mr huntingdon for a season my spirits begin to revive he left me early in february and the moment he was gone i breathed again and felt my vital energy return not with the hope of escape he has taken care to leave me no visible chance of that but with the determination to make the best of existing circumstances here was arthur left to me at last and rousing from my despondent apathy i exerted all my powers to eradicate the weeds that had been fostered in his infant mind and sow again the good seed they had rendered unproductive thank heaven it is not a barren or a stony soil if weeds spring fast there so do better plants his apprehensions are more quick his heart more overflowing with affection than ever his father's could have been and it is no hopeless task to bend him to obedience and win him to love and know his own true friend as long as there is no one to counteract my efforts i had much trouble at first in breaking him of those evil habits his father had taught him to acquire but already that difficulty is nearly vanquished now bad language seldom defiles his mouth and i have succeeded in giving him an absolute disgust for all intoxicating liquors which i hope not even his father or his father's friends will be able to overcome he was inordinately fond of them for so young a creature and remembering my unfortunate father as well as his i dreaded the consequences of such a taste but if i had stinted him in his usual quantity of wine or forbidden him to taste it altogether that would only have increased his partiality for it and made him regard it as a greater treat than ever i therefore gave him quite as much as his father was accustomed to allow him as much indeed as he desired to have but into every glass i surreptitiously introduced a small quantity of tartar emetic just enough to produce inevitable nausea and depression without positive sickness finding such disagreeable consequences invariably to result from this indulgence he soon grew weary of it but the more he drank from the daily treat the more i pressed it upon him till his reluctance was strengthened to perfect abhorrence when he was thoroughly disgusted with every kind of wine i allowed him at his own request to try brandy and water and then gin and water for the little toper was familiar with them all and i was determined that all should be equally hateful to him this i have now effected and since he declares that the taste the smell the sight of any one of them is sufficient to make him sick i have given up teasing him about them except now and then as objects of terror in cases of misbehaviour arthur if you're not a good boy i shall give you a glass of wine or now arthur if you say that again you shall have some brandy and water is as good as any other threat and once or twice when he was sick i have obliged the poor child to swallow a little wine and water without the tartar emetic by way of medicine and this practice i intend to continue for some time to come not that i think it of any real service in a physical sense but because i am determined to enlist all the powers of association in my service i wish this aversion to be so deeply grounded in his nature that nothing in after life may be able to overcome it thus i flatter myself i shall secure him from this one vice and for the rest if on his father's return i find reason to apprehend that my good lessons will be all destroyed if mr huntingdon commence again the game of teaching the child to hate and despise his mother and emulate his father's wickedness i will yet deliver my son from his hands 
i have devised another scheme that might be resorted to in such a case and if i could but obtain my brother's consent and assistance i should not doubt of its success the old hall where he and i were born and where our mother died is not now inhabited nor yet quite sunk into decay as i believe now if i could persuade him to have one or two rooms made habitable and to let them to me as a stranger i might live there with my child under an assumed name and still support myself by my favorite art he should lend me the money to begin with and i would pay him back and live in lowly independence and strict seclusion for the house stands in a lonely place and the neighborhood is thinly inhabited and he himself should negotiate the sale of my pictures for me i have arranged the whole plan in my head and all i want is to persuade frederick to be of the same mind as myself he is coming to see me soon and then i will make the proposal to him having first enlightened him upon my circumstances sufficiently to excuse the project already i believe he knows much more of my situation than i have told him i can tell this by the air of tender sadness pervading his letters and by the fact of his so seldom mentioning my husband and generally evincing a kind of covert bitterness when he does refer to him as well as by the circumstances of his never coming to see me when mr huntingdon is at home but he has never openly expressed any disapprobation of him or sympathy for me he has never asked any questions or said anything to invite my confidence had he done so i should probably have had but few concealments from him perhaps he feels hurt at my reserve he is a strange being i wish we knew each other better he used to spend a month at staningley every year before i was married but since our father's death i have only seen him once when he came for a few days while mr huntingdon was away he shall stay many days this time and there shall be more candour and cordiality between us than ever there was before since our early childhood my heart clings to him more than ever and my soul is sick of solitude april sixteenth he has come and gone he would not stay above a fortnight the time passed quickly but very very happily and it has done me good i must have a bad disposition for my misfortunes have soured and embittered me exceedingly i was beginning insensibly to cherish very unamiable feelings against my fellow-mortals the male part of them especially but it is a comfort to see there is at least one among them worthy to be trusted and esteemed and doubtless there are more though i have never known them unless i except poor lord lowborough and he was bad enough in his day but what would frederick have been if he had lived in the world and mingled from his childhood with such men as these of my acquaintance and what will arthur be with all his natural sweetness of disposition if i do not save him from that world and those companions i mentioned my fears to frederick and introduced the subject of my plan of rescue on the evening after his arrival when i presented my little son to his uncle he is like you frederick said i in some of his moods i sometimes think he resembles you more than his father and i am glad of it you flatter me helen replied he stroking the child's soft wavy locks no you will think it no compliment when i tell you i would rather have him to resemble benson than his father he slightly elevated his eyebrows but said nothing do you know what sort of man mr huntingdon is said i i think i have an idea have you so clear an idea that you can hear without surprise or disapproval 
that i meditate escaping with that child to some secret asylum where we can live in peace and never see him again is it really so if you have not continued i i'll tell you something more about him and i gave a sketch of his general conduct and a more particular account of his behaviour with regard to his child and explained my apprehensions on the latter's account and my determination to deliver him from his father's influence frederick was exceedingly indignant against mr huntingdon and very much grieved for me but still he looked upon my project as wild and impracticable he deemed my fears for arthur disproportioned to the circumstances and opposed so many objections to my plan and devised so many milder methods for ameliorating my condition that i was obliged to enter into further details to convince him that my husband was utterly incorrigible and that nothing could persuade him to give up his son whatever became of me he being as fully determined the child should not leave him as i was not to leave the child and that in fact nothing would answer but this unless i fled from the country as i had intended before to obviate that he at length consented to have one wing of the old hall put into a habitable condition as a place of refuge against the time of need but hoped i would not take advantage of it unless circumstances should render it really necessary which i was ready enough to promise for though for my own sake such a hermitage appears like paradise itself compared with my present situation yet for my friends sakes for millicent and esther my sisters in heart and affection for the poor tenants of grassdale and above all for my aunt i will stay if i possibly can july twenty ninth mrs hargrave and her daughter are come back from london esther is full of her first season in town but she is still heart whole and unengaged her mother sought out an excellent match for her and even brought the gentleman to lay his heart and fortune at her feet but esther had the audacity to refuse the noble gifts he was a man of good family and large possessions but the naughty girl maintained he was old as adam ugly as sin and hateful as as one who shall be nameless but indeed i had a hard time of it said she mamma was very greatly disappointed at the failure of her darling project and very very angry at my obstinate resistance to her will and is so still but i can't help it and walter too is so seriously displeased at my perversity and absurd caprice as he calls it that i fear he will never forgive me i did not think he could be so unkind as he has lately shown himself but millicent begged me not to yield and i'm sure mrs huntingdon if you had seen the man they wanted to palm upon me you would have advised me not to take him too i should have done so whether i had seen him or not said i it is enough that you dislike him i knew you would say so though mamma affirmed you would be quite shocked at my undutiful conduct you can't imagine how she lectures me i am disobedient and ungrateful i am thwarting her wishes wronging my brother and making myself a burden on her hands i sometimes fear she'll overcome me after all i have a strong will but so has she and when she says such bitter things it provokes me to such a pass that i feel inclined to do as she bids me and then break my heart and say there mamma it's all your fault pray don't said i obedience from such a motive would be positive wickedness and certain to bring the punishment it deserved stand firm and your mamma will soon relinquish her persecution 
and the gentleman himself will cease to pester you with his addresses if he finds them steadily rejected oh no mamma will weary all about her before she tires herself with her exertions and as for mr oldfield she has given him to understand that i have refused his offer not from any dislike of his person but merely because i am giddy and young and cannot at present reconcile myself to the thoughts of marriage under any circumstances but by next season she has no doubt i shall have more sense and hopes my girlish fancies will be worn away so she has brought me home to school me into a proper sense of my duty against the time comes round again indeed i believe she will not put herself to the expense of taking me up to london again unless i surrender she cannot afford to take me to town for pleasure and nonsense she says and it is not every rich gentleman that will consent to take me without a fortune whatever exalted ideas i may have of my own attractions well esther i pity you but still i repeat stand firm you might as well sell yourself to slavery at once as marry a man you dislike if your mother and brother are unkind to you you may leave them but remember you are bound to your husband for life but i cannot leave them unless i get married and i cannot get married if nobody sees me i saw one or two gentlemen in london that i might have liked but they were younger sons and mamma would not let me get to know them one especially who i believe rather liked me but she threw every possible obstacle in the way of our better acquaintance wasn't it provoking i have no doubt you would feel it so but it is possible that if you married him you might have more reason to regret it hereafter than if you married mr oldfield when i tell you not to marry without love i do not advise you to marry for love alone there are many many other things to be considered keep both heart and hand in your own possession till you see good reason to part with them and if such an occasion should never present itself comfort your mind with this reflection that though in single life your joys may not be very many your sorrows at least will not be more than you can bear marriage may change your circumstances for the better but in my private opinion it is far more likely to produce a contrary result so thinks millicent but allow me to say i think otherwise if i thought myself doomed to old maidenhood i should cease to value my life the thoughts of living on year after year at the grove a hanger-on upon mamma and walter a mere cumberer of the ground now that i know in what light they would regard it is perfectly intolerable i would rather run away with a butler your circumstances are peculiar i allow but have patience love do nothing rashly remember you are not yet nineteen and many years are yet to pass before any one can set you down as an old maid you cannot tell what providence may have in store for you and meantime remember you have a right to the protection and support of your mother and brother however they may seem to grudge it you are so grave mrs huntingdon said esther after a pause when millicent uttered the same discouraging sentiments concerning marriage i asked if she was happy she said she was but i only half believed her and now i must put the same question to you it is a very impertinent question laughed i from a young girl to a married woman so many years her senior and i shall not answer it pardon me dear madame said she laughingly throwing herself into my arms and kissing me with playful affection but i felt a tear on my neck 
as she dropped her head on my bosom and continued with an odd mixture of sadness and levity timidity and audacity i know you are not so happy as i mean to be for you spend half your life alone at grassdale while mr huntingdon goes about enjoying himself where and how he pleases i shall expect my husband to have no pleasures but what he shares with me and if his greatest pleasure of all is not the enjoyment of my company why it will be the worse for him that's all if such are your expectations of matrimony esther you must indeed be careful whom you marry or rather you must avoid it altogether end of volume three chapter four recording by expatriate in bangor maine Volume three, chapter five of the Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Volume three, chapter five, A Reformation. September first. No Mr. Huntingdon yet. Perhaps he will stay among his friends till Christmas, and then next spring he will be off again. If he continue this plan, I shall be able to stay at Grassdale well enough. That is, I shall be able to stay, and that is enough. Even an occasional bevy of friends at the shooting season may be born if Arthur gets so firmly attached to me, so well established in good sense and principles before they come, that I shall be able by reason and affection to keep him pure from their contaminations. Vain hope, I fear. But still, till such a time of trial comes, I will forbear to think of my quiet asylum in the beloved old hall. Mr. and Mrs. Hattersley have been staying at the Grove a fortnight, and as Mr. Hargrave is still absent, and the weather was remarkably fine, I never passed a day without seeing my two friends, Millicent and Esther, either there or here. On one occasion, when Mr. Hattersley had driven them over to Grassdale in the Phaeton with little Helen and Ralph, and we were all enjoying ourselves in the garden i had a few minutes conversation with that gentleman while the ladies were amusing themselves with the children do you want to hear anything of your husband mrs huntingdon said he no unless you can tell me when to expect him home i can't you don't want him do you said he with a broad grin no well i think you're better without him sure enough for my part i'm downright weary of him i told him i'd leave him if he didn't mend his manners and he wouldn't so i left him you see i'm a better man than you think me and what's more i have serious thoughts of washing my hands of him entirely and the whole set of em and comporting myself from this day forward with all decency and sobriety as a christian and the father of a family should do what do you think of that it is a resolution you ought to have formed long ago well i'm not thirty yet it isn't too late is it no it is never too late to reform as long as you have the sense to desire it and the strength to execute your purpose well to tell you the truth i've thought of it often and often before but he's such a devilish good company as huntingdon after all you can't imagine what a jovial good fellow he is when he's not fairly drunk only just primed or half seas over we all have a bit of a liking for him at the bottom of our hearts though we can't respect him but should you wish yourself to be like him no i'd rather be like myself bad as i am 
you can't continue as bad as you are without getting worse and more brutalized every day and therefore more like him i could not help smiling at the comical half angry half confounded look he put on at this rather unusual mode of address never mind my plain speaking said i it is from the best of motives but tell me should you wish your sons to be like mr huntingdon or even like yourself hang it no should you wish your daughter to despise you or at least to feel no vestige of respect for you and no affection but what is mingled with the bitterest regret oh blast it no i couldn't stand that and finally should you wish your wife to be ready to sink into the earth when she hears you mentioned and to loathe the very sound of your voice and shudder at your approach she never will she likes me all the same whatever i do impossible mr hattersley you mistake her quiet submission for affection fire and fury well now don't burst into a tempest at that i don't mean to say she does not love you she does i know a great deal better than you deserve but i am quite sure that if you behave better she will love you more and if you behave worse she will love you less and less till all is lost in fear aversion and bitterness of soul if not in secret hatred and contempt but dropping the subject of affection should you wish to be the tyrant of her life to take away all the sunshine from her existence and make her thoroughly miserable of course not and i don't and i'm not going to you have done more towards it than you suppose pooh pooh she's not the susceptible anxious worriting creature you imagine she's a little meek peaceable affectionate body apt to be rather sulky at times but quiet and cool in the main and ready to take things as they come think of what she was five years ago when you married her and what she is now i know she was a little plump lassie then with a pretty pink and white face now she's a poor little bit of a creature fading and melting away like a snow wreath but hang it by jupiter that's not my fault what is the cause of it then not years for she's only five-and-twenty it's her own delicate health and confound it madam what would you make of me and the children to be sure that worry her to death between them no mr hattersley the children give her more pleasure than pain they are fine well-dispositioned children i know they are bless them then why lay the blame on them i'll tell you what it is it's silent fretting and constant anxiety on your account mingled i suspect with something of bodily fear on her own when you behave well she can only rejoice with trembling she has no security no confidence in your judgment or principles but is continually dreading the close of such short-lived felicity when you behave ill her causes of terror and misery are more than any one can tell but herself in patient endurance of evil she forgets it is our duty to admonish our neighbours of their transgressions since you will mistake her silence for indifference come with me and i'll show you one or two of her letters no breach of confidence i hope since you are her other half he followed me into the library i sought out and put into his hands two of millicent's letters one dated from london and written during one of his wildest seasons of reckless dissipation the other in the country during a lucid interval the former was full of trouble and anguish not accusing him but deeply regretting his connection with his profligate companions 
abusing mr grimsby and others insinuating bitter things against mr huntingdon and most ingeniously throwing the blame of her husband's misconduct onto other men's shoulders the latter was full of hope and joy yet with a trembling consciousness that this happiness would not last praising his goodness to the skies but with an evident though but half expressed wish that it were based on a surer foundation than the natural impulses of the heart and a half prophetic dread of the fall of that house so founded on the sand which fall had shortly after taken place as hattersley must have been conscious while he read almost at the commencement of the first letter i had the unexpected pleasure of seeing him blush but he immediately turned his back to me and finished the perusal at the window at the second i saw him once or twice raise his hand and hurriedly pass it across his face could it be to dash away a tear when he had done there was an interval spent in clearing his throat and staring out of the window and then after whistling a few bars of a favourite air he turned round and gave me back the letters and silently shook me by the hand i've been a cursed rascal god knows said he as he gave it a hearty squeeze but you see if i don't make amends for it god damn me if i don't don't curse yourself mr hattersley if god had heard half your invocations of that kind you would have been in hell long before now and you cannot make amends for the past by doing your duty for the future inasmuch as your duty is only what you owe to your maker and you cannot do more than fulfil it another must make amends for your past delinquencies if you intend to reform invoke god's blessing his mercy and his aid not his curse god help me then for i'm sure i need it where's millicent she's there just coming in with her sister he stepped out at the glass door and went to meet them i followed at a little distance somewhat to his wife's astonishment he lifted her off from the ground and saluted her with a hearty kiss and a strong embrace then placing his two hands on her shoulders he gave her i suppose a sketch of the great things he meant to do for she suddenly threw her arms round him and burst into tears exclaiming do do ralph we shall be so happy how very very good you are nay not i said he turning her round and pushing her towards me thank her it's her doing millicent flew to thank me overflowing with gratitude i disclaimed all title to it telling her her husband was predisposed to amendment before i added my might of exhortation and encouragement and that i had only done what she might and ought to have done herself oh no cried she i couldn't have influenced him i'm sure by anything that i could have said i should only have bothered him by my clumsy efforts at persuasion if i had made the attempt you never tried me milly said he shortly after they took their leave they are now gone on a visit to hattersley father after that they will repair to their country home i hope his good resolutions will not fall through and poor millicent will not be again disappointed her last letter was full of present bliss and pleasing anticipations for the future but no particular temptation has yet occurred to put his virtue to the test henceforth however she will doubtless be somewhat less timid and reserved and he more kind and thoughtful surely then her hopes are not unfounded and i have one bright spot at least whereon to rest my thoughts end of volume three chapter five 
Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.